I'm mindful often of the Israelites in the desert. The logistics alone of caring for a million plus people is mind-boggling. I have the utmost respect for those who do logistics and uh, war campaigns. But to take that many people and put them out in the middle of nowhere and then realize that each of them have different needs, they have different emotional needs, they have different spiritual needs, they have different relational needs, and they have different dietary needs. And God gives them manna, and he gives it to them six days a week. And the manna is sufficient to meet the unique dietary needs of each and every person. The manna takes into consideration adversion, allergies, toxicity, things that people don't even know they have in their bodies. He provides them with what it is exactly what they need. And, but he all provides them the same thing. Today is no different. Here today and online and for years to come, people will watch this message, listen. And the needs of the people receiving it are unique. There may be some here today who actually need to begin by faith a relationship in Christ. That's, that's one of the most important needs. That's the most important need. Others of you are struggling physically. You're dealing with some of you chemotherapy, some of you radiation, some of you coming off, some of you going on, some of you have physical issues. Susan has, this past week, a head injury. Uh, Kitty is in the hospital with an infection and uh, Bruce Linklater is, is dealing with all kinds of stuff. The McKim family is like on a marathon of, uh, of coming back from a time of, of suffering. So how is it that the manna, the word, is cast upon the waters and meets the needs of individual people? That I don't know, but I do know that happens. I today have a specific need. I have been for some weeks now outwardly appearing to be fine, but it's not altogether true, not always. How many of you know that grief comes in waves? And uh, today isn't the greatest of days for me. I'm wondering what it is that God can give me from this word. My need may be different than yours. Some of you have graduated from, from, from schools of grief that I can't even touch. I've been knocked back. Uh, I think everything is okay and that I'm not. And then, but, but whatever the case may be, you have a need. And all I know to do, experientially for my own self, and I, all I know to say to you when you go through these things is to go to the manna and eat. I like the way the Italians say it. Mangia, mangia. It's time to eat. These people know how to eat. Look at cultures that know how to eat and do what they do. Manja, manja. See, eating for them is a, is a feast. It's, a, it's, a, it's an exercise in family relations. It's an opportunity to shout and, and not even be mad at each other, these people. They got it all down. This meal to them is a happening. So look at your neighbor today and say, manja, manja, let's eat.
And we're eating today from uh, Joshua chapter six, chapter you're no stranger to. I probably have enough here for three messages, so we'll probably cut it, cut it short at some point in time. We'll pick a good ending place. It goes something like this. Now you've heard this, some of you since you were in Sunday school as a child, that's okay. But today, it's fresh bread. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one went in. Jericho, a Canaanite stronghold, is shut up. No one's in, no one's out, everything is still. No movement. Now, a little history on the Canaanites. They are depraved, they are wicked, they are, if I, if I had time to sit here and tell you about the wickedness, you might even get sick to your stomach. It's horrible. And God has promised them this land. Remember, he spied it out. The, the commander of the Lord's army had a meeting, which was Jesus, had a meeting with Joshua in the field and got everything squared away. Joshua was a military commander taking over from Moses, who's on the top of Mount Nebo, watching them go into the promised land. Some of, some of us were at Mount Nebo together. I remember that, it was fascinating. But Jericho now is shut up. And God has a strategy. Notice, let me say that again. God has a strategy. And I would say a million times out of a million, God's strict strategy is different than our strategy. That's the first thing we gotta learn. God has a strategy and it's probably different than ours. God's ways are not our ways. God's about to do something that when you read it, you say to yourself, that's fairly goofy. I'm not sure I would have thought about that strategy in a million years. But Jericho is the first in a military campaign to overtake the very land, much of which Israel inhabits today, because God promised it, a land flowing with milk and honey. God's strategy is not our strategy. Notice also that we can walk, walk in circles in life and actually get nowhere. Some people just have done nothing but walk in a circle their whole life and they never really arrived anywhere. But you can walk in circles within God's strategy and actually accomplish something great. That's why God's strategy is so important. You don't have to walk at a straight line and get to a destination. He can make a destination out of right where you are. You can actually walk in circles. Jericho is small. It's well protected. It's well fortified. And everything at this point has been preparatory. But if they can get Jericho, if they can get Jericho, they can go in and get the rest of it. They know that if they get Jericho, God knows if they get Jericho, if they bring Jericho down, the rest of the nation of the Canaanites is gonna tremble. Nobody would expect anybody to walk around something, play a few trumpets, and take a town like Jericho. If you could take a Jericho with a trumpet, you can take the rest of Canaan. That's the way it is. And notice also, a great principle in life. Always tackle the most difficult thing in your day first. 
Whatever is the most difficult thing on your to-do list, whatever you don't wanna do the most, whatever you think would be the most difficult, that's where you start. That's the number one thing on the priority list. Why? Because if you keep putting it off, your preoccupation with it will rob you of doing anything of quality in the rest of your list. The morning is the time to get bowed up in the spirit and tackle the worst thing that you have to do that day. Find your Jericho and go nail it. The rest of your day will be a cakewalk and you can even walk a cakewalk in a circle and you'll get somewhere. That was actually good advice and I needed to hear that for myself. There's no in and no out. Once something has no in and no out, it's already conquered. If they cannot resupply, nor give anything out, you're done. In your life, if you have been cut off from the provision of God, the blessing of God, the grace of God, the wisdom of God, if none of that's coming in, and you have nothing to go out, you're already doomed. You're cooked. You may not realize it, but you are. If nothing of the Lord comes in and nothing goes out, you're already defeated. You're simply rationalizing your existence until the day when you no longer have breath, but you're done. You're done before you're actually done. You have to have the resupply, the replenishment, and the things of God. He made us that way. You're in need of that, as am I, and if it doesn't come in, and certainly if it doesn't go out, you're cooked. Some of us may just have to come to the realization this morning, we're already cooked. Jericho is cooked, done. When I went and got my master's degree, which half the stuff they taught me I didn't agree with, which made for interesting class discussions, they used to use this phrase, and I, and I thought, my, every professor used it. Already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. And about two semesters of that, I finally, like, finally got it. God has already established the defeat of Jericho, but just not yet. It's already in the queue. It's gonna happen, but not just yet. Some of the things you're praying for, you're hoping for, the restoration of people in your, the salvation of people in your family, already established, just not yet. Already established, just not yet. That 12-year-old little boy that used to sit over there, Already established he has a purpose and a mission for the rest of his life. Already established he's probably gonna help people in all kinds of different ways. Already, not yet. It's coming to pass. It's already started. It's already a foregone conclusion. You came to Christ and you came to in faith to believe in him. Things were already established but not yet happened in your life. God has made you his handiwork. He created you in Christ Jesus to do good works. That what? He prepared in advance for you to do. That which he prepared for you to do has already been established, but not yet come to pass. Jericho is already established, just not yet come to pass. And the sooner we grab onto those things and stop praying about them, certain things you don't have to pray about anymore. Once you have the peace and the confidence it's already coming to pass, let it go. Now just wait on it to happen. You're preoccupying yourself with something that's already established. You're not praying for something else. Already, but not yet. That's Jericho. The other thing you have to know when we get into this passage is this is God's battle. 
This is God's battle. And frankly, they all are. They really are. 1 Samuel 17 and 47. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. The battle that goes on over our nation, the battle that goes on over morality, the, all of those things at the end of the day are the Lord's battle. That is established. What we need to know is what is the Lord's strategy? Because if we battle, quote, battle on his behalf as though he needs us to, and we're working in a wrong strategy that he is, we're actually working against him. What he calls us to do as we battle for truth and morality has to be in keeping with the methodology he wants to bring about. Nine times out of a 10, the Christian will look at the enemy as flesh and blood when in reality it's not. So all of a sudden we're, we're, we're accusing and dividing ourselves against the rest of humanity and leaving alone the very spirit behind the immorality that exists. The Canaanites are not a physical battle. The Canaanites are a spiritual battle. What they represent is depravity, the sacrifice of innocent children. They represent immorality and darkness and demonic activity and occultic thinking. That's what God's destroying. He doesn't want to destroy the people, but he has to because they're so far gone into the darkness he has to judge them. There's no return for these people. They're immersed in it. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. Hmm. God's letting Joshua know that he's already victorious and it hasn't even started. The Lord is a chess player more than he's a checker player. A chess player takes into account one, two, three, maybe up to 12 even more moves on the board as a result of the initial move that's made. God is, God is giving them moves on the chessboard that all they have to do is obedient to move and he already knows the back and forth of it all. He already knows the conclusion of the game. This is our God. And he chose a military commander to do it. Why is this important? It's important because a military commander who has just gotten an order from the commander of the Lord's army in a field does what he's told to do. He follows orders. And because God has a strategy and the military commander does nothing but follow orders, God has the right person in place to lead because he will do exactly what he's told to do whether it makes sense or not. And the results will bear fruit whether he thinks they will or not. It's already a foregone conclusion. You know, we could, we could, we could improve our own lives right now by, by accepting the Lord's commands more as like from a divine general and we're his foot soldier where there are certain things that we may not understand but we certainly just don't question them. We just do them and we do them out of love. That's why he's got Joshua. His initial moves dictate future results. Comply with him in the beginning and you will succeed. 
March around the city once with all the armed men. This is where it gets goofy. March around the city once with all the armed men. How foolish do you think this man feels? Do this for six days. Now we're really getting goofy. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. I mean, it's bad enough you get that as your order. <laughs> it's all another thing to convey that to all the people. All right, everybody, this is what we're gonna do. Say, what? We're, we're, we might be within reach of the archers. They could throw oil on us and burn us. They could throw rocks at us. They could, th whatever, they could use catapults, whatever, the f but this is what we're gonna do. Everybody, get your best hiking shoes on. You trumpeters, pick up your trumpet. We're going into battle. And let's put the priest out front. But really, shouldn't that be the way it is? Put the priest up front, because that's where the ark is, and that's where the presence is. Now they're all following the presence of God. Not a bad idea, to say the least. Following the presence of God. In your prayer life, I would encourage you to not visualize with your sanctified imagination or, or, or even converse with God in prayer where you think he's up there and you're down here. No. Think more of he's ahead of you and he's paving the way and you're following the spirit. You're following the presence, okay? That's a different way of looking at things, but it'll keep your prayer life different than it would be if you felt disassociated and some sort of breach exists between you and him of two different realms. But there's a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who prayed for the Spirit. The Spirit's supposed to go ahead of us. We're supposed to follow him. We can ill afford to get ahead of God. That's the lesson here. We can ill afford to get ahead of God. And when you march, lockstep, and the presence of God is in front of you, keep your eyes on the Lord and not the enemy. Sometimes people younger in their faith get so inquisitive and curious about the enemy and all the things that the enemy wants to do that they get enamored with it and take their eyes off the Lord. The Lord is ahead of you as you pray for these people in your life. You're following him, which he wants you to do. And you're to fix your eyes on him, the author and the perfecter of your faith, not your situation, not your problem, not your sickness, not your disease, not your malady, not your confusion, not your lack of peace, not your anxiety disorder, not your uh, eating disorder, not, not any of that, not your hopelessness, not your depression. Look ahead of you. The Lord is paving a way for you. His lamp is, his word is a lamp unto your feet and light unto your path. You're on the runway. It's lit on both sides like an aisle of an airplane and you're following him. He's the pilot. Don't look out the window. Hopefully your eyes in my eyes, will cause your heart and mind and my heart and mind to fixate on him as well. You take your eyes off of him and you stray. You worry, you feel hopeless, you give up, you get tired, you get frustrated. God's strategy is odd, 
but it's very purposeful. All God wants to do with this particular strategy is the same things he wants to do in any strategy. He wants to partner with you. He could easily have sent those people back into the desert and he could have just, I think I'll smite Jericho and raise it to the ground. Now I've been there with many of you and there's not a city there, which by the way at the end of this chapter they said there wouldn't be. I mean you can get some pretty good dates and some figs and I think some grapefruits, I'm not sure, but that's about it. There's no city there and there's no wall. But he wants us to follow him in his strategy and he wants us to fix our eyes on him because he wants to be in partnership with us. That means a lot to him, to be in partnership because between the two of us, us, the body of Christ and him is synergy. We get a lot more done. He says, when you hear a sound of a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, doesn't mean he didn't have parents. So, you know, you have that question, did, uh, did Adam have a belly button? You sit around talking about that, my guess is you probably got too much time on your hands. Or Joshua, son of Nun, was he the only guy born without parents? No. It's N-U-N, sorry. <clears throat> Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army. Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord covenant followed them. Ark of the covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priest who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. At this time, the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not, listen to this, do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had an ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to the camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning. The priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord. While the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. Why? What happened in those six days? They got over the goofiness of what they were doing and the uncertainty as to why they're doing it, the manner that they're doing it, when none of them who had any, any kind of military combat experience would have come up with this plan. They've gotten over that in six days. They've gotten into the idea now that, okay, we are vulnerable each and every day from their attack from the walls and their fortified, edified fortress and their ramparts. They're, they're building courage. They're actually building courage because they're actually doing something and they're surviving it. Sometimes just that enough will build courage. The second thing they're doing is they're building endurance. They're doing something over and over and over and it's building up their faith and their courage. They're not as afraid or mystified or bewildered as they were when they start and they're starting to get some endurance, which is huge and uh, very proper. And they're realizing their helplessness is actually an asset. Let me say that again. Their helplessness is actually an asset and not a liability. Their 
meekness and their vulnerability is actually in the strategy of God, an asset, a weapon. And the greatest miracle of all in this whole thing to me is not that the walls came down, but that these people didn't open their mouth for six days. That to me is like the miracle of all miracles. No complaining, no grumbling, no groaning, nobody from the back. How many more days are we gonna do this? None of that. My feet hurt. Nothing, not a word. That's a miracle to me. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times. We're in the last day now. Seven times on the seventh day, plus six other times. In the same manner, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua, the commander of the army, said, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And they're like, what? They're still standing there. What's me? There it is. Shout. And he says, sometimes you gotta shout before it happens. Sometimes you gotta claim something, and I'm definitely not in the name of claim it, but I can tell you what, if God said this is gonna happen, I'm claiming it and declaring it that it will happen. Because it will happen, I already know it's gonna happen. But here's the problem. What's up? Seven days of marching. Say what? No Sabbath? No Sabbath rest? No day off? What is that? God is calling his people to do something and work on the Sabbath? And he already told them to take the Sabbath off. He already took a day off in creation or whatever, a day, a season, whatever you want to look at it. What meaneth this? You see, Pay attention, when we're doing what God commanded us to do and we're following the exact orders he gave us and we're carrying out the very specific chess move and strategy that he initiated with us, guess what? It's not work. It's not work. It's rest. He's the one working. Not them. In his plan, we get pulled along like a motorcycle behind a semi-truck. We get drafted. We don't have any effort involved. What he's trying to teach us is, I want to partner with you, and i got a strategy, and I want you to do it. If you just listen to the people up front and keep your eyes on me, let me tell you what's going to happen. It's going to be effortless. If you're striving all the time in your Christian walk, you're probably operating in the flesh and you probably do need a Sabbath. But if God is 100% in control of what you're doing, you're doing exactly what he told you to do, it would be workless, without striving. Now, some of us have talked about this. Some of us in the room have talked about this in counseling. You know of what I speak. Shh. Calm yourself down. Get behind him, not ahead of him. Stop working for him. Let him work for you. Stop battling the whole world. It's his battle. Listen to what he has to say and follow him. Effortless. Effortless. Actually engaging and, I, would, I dare say, fun. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. That's what he's saying. Psalm 47 and 1. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all those who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things. Keep away from the devoted things, the devil things, the 
the, the instruments of pagan worship. Keep away from those things. Keep away from the filth of all that they, keep away from all of the instruments they use in their pagan devil worship. And you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Don't touch it. Otherwise, you'll be make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. What? I thought God just got 10%. What? Why's he getting everything? What's up? You see, God thinks in the moment and he thinks in the weeks and months to come. And he thinks of the battle at AI and all the towns that'll be sacked and all the demonic activity that'll be crushed and all of the pagan rituals that were ceased. He sees Jericho as the first fruits. It is 10%. It's the first fruit of the entire liberation of the promised land for his people. And he knows that, so he asks for all of it. He already knows they're gonna get the whole project. They may not believe it or know it yet, but God knows, and God's great at accounting for what is his and what is ours, and he realizes that you don't understand this, but what I just did is a first fruit of everything I'm gonna do in this nation, and is still doing, I might add. Stay away from the accursed things, the idols, the darkness, the instruments. Avoid the appearance of demonic activity and depraved activity and occultic activity. Don't even go near it. And when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Unlike any other battle, do not limit your Lord to your finite past experiences. If what we do in our Christian walk is based on what we've experienced in our own past, what we've learned in our own past, and doesn't take into account what the Lord says to do now, we're basing and limiting him with our experiences. He cannot be limited by our experiences. He has to be afforded the opportunity to do something new. He doesn't restrict himself, nor are we allowed to restrict him by what we know, what we've learned, where we went to church, what's going on. None of that is appropriate. We do not pigeonhole the divine based on our knowledge of him or lack thereof. And boy, they learned that this time. He did something he's never done before because he has the right to do whatever he wants when he wants. He did something in a new way, in an odd way, he had something to do with musical instruments and walking in a circle, which is his responsibility and, 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 and it's his idea that makes it good. This business, well, I never, I've never seen that before. Irrelevant. He doesn't need to check with us on what we know or what, what we prayed for. He, he's not limited by the prayers that we've prayed or the knowledge we have or the Bible studies we went to or the denominations we grew up in. It's not limited by anything. And now he, he takes the whole city. And the judgment, it seems harsh. Get to that in a second. So how'd the wall come down? 
Must have been. I can, hear, I can hear some of the conversations going on. If you got enough people in a small group and you broke up in the tables, you had a cup of coffee, you started talking about, how'd the wall come down? Well, the vibrations of the marchers for that many days must have loosened the mortar and the rock, shake the ground a little bit, softened it up. It probably rained, who knows? And then the walls came down. Come on! It's a miracle! What's wrong with that? It's a miracle! Why do we have to explain everything? God ransacked the wall, period! Except for one solitary place where he saw a scarlet thread hanging out. The day will come, my friend, and night is coming when no man can work, and all will come to desolation except that which is under the blood of Christ. The safest place you can possibly be is right in the middle of God's strategy under the blood of Jesus Christ. My guess is Rahab wasn't the most moral of women. Not many prostitutes are. But what's the point here? Don't miss it. The grace of God. The grace of God. The bloodline of Jesus Christ. Grafted into the people of God. Spared when everyone was brought to desolation. Spared because of the grace of God. Because of the bloodline. The animal skins in the garden. shedding of the covenant and cutting the covenant with Abraham. The scarlet thread. What a God. Yeah, the judgment seems harsh. And you know why it does? Because it is. Because it is. It was harsh. We do well just to read it for what it's worth. It was harsh. It was harsh. But so was their activity, so was their defiance, so was their willfulness, so was their apostasy, so was their rejection. You see, we serve a righteous judge, and a righteous judge makes righteous decisions. When he takes into account all that he probably had done that may not even be in the Old Testament, doesn't look like it is, to get these people on board with him and they defied him, defied him, defied him, yes, the penalty is harsh. It's harsh. And we'd be well just to receive that. Because when we do, we have a pretty good idea what it is we need to do in terms of reaching the lost because that's harsh as well. We need to keep that in mind. When you come into the land the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. They shall not be found among you. Anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who can conjures conjures spells or mediums or spiritists, when he calls up the dead. For these things are an abomination to the Lord. Those who sacrifice their children in 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 the arms of a sculpted idol, babies, infants. Yes, the judgment is harsh. At the end of the day, Joshua does what he was told. 
and what he was told was an undefeatable strategy. The people didn't question the command of their leader. They stayed quiet when told to stay quiet. They were courageous, they endured, and they saw the power of meekness, and they were victorious. So often we act as though the battle is ours. When the battle's ours, when the battle's truly ours, we have the responsibility of passing judgment, inflicting punishment, losing ourselves along the way. God give us a church and this nation that will clearly follow his strategy, that we may shout, that immorality would be brought down, and righteousness would be exalted. The key is to get everybody to march in the same direction, at the same pace, at the same timing, at the same motive, at the same obedience. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house, bring her out, and all who belong to her, in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought her out, the entire family, and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Acts 16.31, quoted to the prison guard in Philippi, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved, you and your household. I don't know. I don't know how far to take that. I really don't. I know how far I want to take it. But here's what I know. The most immoral of women who could easily have been caught up in everything else in Canaan had to offer was granted a grace. And when her sin abound, grace did much more abound. She and her household were spared. Her name is forever written in the annals of history in the inspired word of God to teach you and I, however close we, be, we may be to Rahab, however bad off we are, worse than she ever was, where our sin abounds, grace does much more abound. She looked out her window and saw marching every single day. She felt the vibrations every single day. The trumpets were like air, air horns every single day. But somewhere in her heart, she had to have this quietness, this assurance, this, this difference than every other Canaanite had. She had to look at the marchers as they marched past the scarlet thread. I don't know how far off you're walking or you're coming back to the Lord. I, I don't know if you've ever accepted him, but if you start to look at yourself and everything that sets itself up against you through the blood of Jesus Christ, you'll be pleading that blood on your own heart for the forgiveness of your sin. And you will not be destroyed. You will not be destroyed for the blood of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sin. Stay at the house, it says Joshua 2.17. Rahab, stay at the house. 
with the scarlet cord hanging from the window. Stay at the house with the scarlet cord hanging from the window. Can't see it, but I think hanging from this fancy roof we just put on is a in the spirit of scarlet cord. It's your cross. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. That's all we got. That's all we got. That's all we got. It's the blood, the blood, the blood. The life is in the blood. We're going to sing this song, and I want you to think for a moment as you sing it. Reflect for a moment as you sing it. Of what the Lord has done for you. What he's continuing to do for you. What he did for you before you were even aware of it 2,000 years ago. See if you don't have a shout in you before you leave here today. Amen? Count your blessings.